0: Today, my guest is Bill Athanas, a partner at the Waller Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. And he recently penned an article, Am I Going to Get Indicted? Nine Factors That Drive Outcomes in White Collar Cases. It's a great review of the factors a white collar defense lawyer would think about and utilize in cases under the FCPA or other white collar crimes. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with with me Bill I never get this right. Athanus, is that right? Close enough, Athanus. All right. Uh, And Bill and I have known each other for some time. We've uh, chatted over the years on some podcasts and other topics, but we're today going to talk about an article that uh, Bill wrote. And um, I'm going to start with Bill asking if you could give our listeners uh, your professional background.
1: Sure. Um, you know, born and raised in the Northeast. Went to school up there. Worked as an associate at a small firm in Boston uh, for a few years with your your friend Vin Deciani, uh who I know you know well. Um, left in uh, late two thousand one to join the fraud section of the Department of Justice. Um, worked there for four years. Got to work with a really great. Group of people: uh, Mark Mendelson, Billy Jacobson, Adrian Mabane, Roger Chatterjee, Paul Pelletier. You know, all people who who went on to do just really great things. Uh, after four years of of basically traveling, you know, two hundred forty days a year, decided maybe it was a good idea to to settle down and and find a U.S. Attorney's office. So I, I joined the U.S. Attorney's office in Birmingham and um, did a lot of uh, bank fraud and tax work uh, there for the first couple of years. Then then moved into public corruption. Uh, in 2009, I, I left. I came to uh, to Waller. I've, I've been here ever since.
0: So you wrote an article entitled, Am I Going to Get Indicted? And one of the reasons I wanted to, to visit with you is most of my listeners have more of a civil law background, and they don't really understand the process both a federal prosecutor would utilize to think through this issue, but also uh, a white-collar defense lawyer, uh, how— you and others might use these same uh, concepts from the principles of federal prosecution. So, if I could start with, why did you write this article,
1: Bill? Yeah, so I wrote it because this is a large part of, of what I do. A, a big part of white collar work is is pre indictment um, work. Um, that it is, it, it, it happens that you get hired, you know, after the client is is charged, but. For, for me at least the far more common outcome is that there's some level of inquiry uh, that the client is is the focus of or is connected to um, and you've got to kind of figure out at that stage you know where this is going to go um, and so you know that that question is always the the clients' focus um, at that point which is how is this going to end predict the future for me and and so in turn that's that's got to be you know what the lawyer is is keyed on, in on so I, I spent a lot of time trying to answer that question. And, and, you know, as I thought about it, I thought, well, I just sort of do that by feel. Um, but but I don't. Um, and when I really sat down and, and thought about it, I realized that the, that process breaks down into a series of, of factors. And I've tried to, to not only identify those, but also rank them um, in, in order of, of, you know, most to least important to at least have some sort of a framework um, to, to think through that question.
0: Bill, I think most compliance practitioners have heard of the principles of federal prosecution. They've certainly heard of the Justice Manual uh, as well. But could you uh, talk about what those documents are and how a prosecutor uh, would utilize them?
1: Yeah. So they basically are—it's a framework that a prosecutor is is supposed to and and you know in my experience, virtually always does apply when deciding whether to charge a case. So as a prosecutor, you get a file, um, you work with an agent on it, um, evidence is gathered, documents reviewed, witnesses are interviewed, and, and ultimately a determination is made about whether or not to to charge this person, either to indict them or to, to execute a plea agreement with them. And the decision to move forward in that fashion with, uh, you know, with a charging decision has to be guided by Certain factors and the principles of federal prosecution are. I think that the Justice Department's attempt to to have a, a framework in place that prosecutors can use to ensure not only that that there are certain factors that should never be considered, but that there's a consistent framework so that you know a prosecutor in Birmingham, Alabama, is not applying an entirely different uh, uh, analytical. Uh, process that that one in Portland, Maine uh, might be undertaking, or one in Los Angeles, um, and so it's a desire for there to be uniformity in in charging decisions. Um, and you know, it, it used to be that that if you wanted to see these things, you had to buy the U.S. Attorneys Manual, which is, was was uh, a loose leaf set that cost a fortune, and and maybe you could find it at a library somewhere. Uh, but over time, it, it, it has become much more readily available. It's now on the Internet, um, you know, as, as labeled, it's, it's moved from being labeled the U.S. Attorney's Manual, of which the principles of federal prosecution are part, to the Justice Manual. Um, but anyone who wants to read them can read them. Um, and so that is uh, the, the framework that it's important to understand as you try to have pro- conversations with prosecutors about, you know, whether and how a case ought to move forward.
0: I'd now like to to turn to how you use them in your current practice, and maybe uh, go through uh, the
1: nine factors, and then we can perhaps walk through each one. Sure. So, you know, the the way that I use it is to to have sort of an understanding right? a reminder of the the things that I learned and and what's important. It's always good as a refresher um, when you're trying to solve a problem to know what the formula is that ostensibly produces that result. So it's a a good way to to keep yourself focused um, when you're defending these cases on what is and and what isn't important. The other way that I use them is I I think they can be a very effective tool for pre-indictment advocacy. You know, if you're going to a prosecutor or a group of prosecutors and trying to convince them that they they should not move forward with a case, it's important to to have some substance to your arguments. I'm, I'm you know, constantly reminded of the number of times people in, you know, defense lawyers in cases that I handled as a prosecutor either didn't do anything or came to me with arguments that were just useless were just, you know, you're going to ruin this guy's life if you indict him. Well, that, that doesn't, that doesn't help me get to a, you know, the right result and being able to speak a prosecutor's language about particular factors um, in the principles of federal prosecution is, is incredibly valuable to fostering, you know, meaningful conversations. Um, And particularly when you're on the right side of those um, is that, you know, it's, it's something that is, is really important to me uh, and valuable to me uh, when I try to represent clients pre-indictment.
0: Bill, let me pick up on something you said there, because I think many, uh, Practitioners such as myself come from the civil side of things, really don't understand the the dialogue that will go on, perhaps between a prosecutor and a white-collar defense lawyer uh, like yourself. Uh, and we think it's all very formal and, and rote, but in talking to, to folks who practice in areas like you do, uh, they tell me it's really not, that uh, you do have a dialogue dialogue. You'd have to present cogent arguments in those dialogues. But uh, could you speak a little bit about, about that part of the process where you actually are in dialogue with a prosecutor?
1: Yeah, certainly. It, it really is one of the most challenging and interesting aspects of, of my job, I think. And it takes place uh, you know, in a couple of different ways, which are not necessarily mutually exclusive. One is is conversations, either in person or, or you know, these days over the phone more, more often. Um, but a, a, a substantive back and forth discussion about whether this is a case that it should move forward, uh, to charges. Um, you know, there are also, um, many prosecutors and I have used them will, will do presentations, um, largely PowerPoints, um, about particular factual and legal issues. Um, you know, I think there's some view that, uh, not giving the government, uh, something tangible, um, you know, but rather just putting it up on a screen that there is value to that. I, I don't really subscribe to that. I think, I think those sorts of presentations are, are important, but I'm, I never worry about actually, you know, submitting, a, a, a document or uh, materials to the government. In fact, that's, that's almost always what I do is I'll do a full blown submission. Um, you know, that can run 30, 40, 50 pages, um, with an explanation of, of why factually and legally this case is, is wrong. But the discussion to your, to your question, Tom, really it takes place over oftentimes a series of months, sometimes years. Um, and it evolves as the case evolves, as new information is gathered, as the client's uh, desires, uh, change. Um, in terms of, of how to how to resolve the case um, and you know the likelihood that it it, it may be moving toward charges um, and the discussion is is at least initially um, a binary one charge them or don't um, and depending on on the trajectory of the case it will move into okay I know you're going to charge them but here here's what you ought to charge it ought to be this rather than that um, and, and you know equally if not more important. This ought to be the the outcome, the 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 sanction that's he's facing uh, at the end of the day.
0: Bill, could we now turn to uh, the factors themselves and ask you just to go through uh, each factor and, and give a few
1: thoughts on really what each one means? Sure. So, you know, to me, the most important is the obvious one: the strength of the evidence and and you know how how much evidence and. and I think more importantly, how good is the evidence that the government has in this case? And I, I talk in the article about what I would deem wince-inducing uh, evidence. These are texts or documents um, that are just fundamentally inconsistent with the primary defense in these cases, which is good faith. Um, things that that really are tough, tough, tough to answer and, and respond to, um, and they matter because you know, no prosecutor likes to lose. Um, that is the prosecutor's greatest fear is that I'm gonna go to trial and there's gonna be a not guilty verdict and I'm gonna have to walk back to the office with my head hung low and I'll be humiliated and how could you lose uh, trial? The, the conviction rates are 93% and, and how could that possibly have happened? And so a prosecutor always wants that security blanket of that wince-inducing evidence. And I'm talking here about like the guy who has two sets of tax returns, right? One that he gives to the bank um, to, to, to get a loan and the other one that he gives to the IRS. And for some reason, there is a 400% difference in his claimed income in those two documents. Um, those, those are challenging documents to deal with. And so when I look at a case, I, I, I try to identify and, and look for explanations for, for that sort of, of, of evidence. So while that's the most important to me, the second is, is what I would call the age of the case. And by that, I mean, I have seen happen so many times that the government gets too many resources, too much time, too much effort into a case to walk away from it. It is virtually impossible if the government has two or three years of solid investigative and, and prosecutorial time invested to convince them that they should just close the file. Um, it's re- I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It's really hard to, to get it to to get them to do that. And so when you look at when I look at the age of a case, I'm I'm looking really at how long has it been open and and what's been done on it. If it's been open for two years and and there aren't any subpoenas or or not much has happened, I'm not very concerned. I know, you know, where that case is, is likely headed. If if they've been working the case hard, there are people in the grand jury, there's lots of subpoenas it's much more likely that's going to end with, with charges. Um, the next one is, is what I would call the, the width of the case. You know, how how big is it? Um, there are economies of scale in these cases in terms of, of charging. It is not terribly difficult if you're drafting an indictment that charges five people to charge a sixth. Um, and so if you have a client who is on the outer edges of uh, one of those cases, Um, You know, that's a factor that that matters significantly in in trying to predict the outcome. Um, The next is is cooperation. What are the chances that you can cooperate yourself your your way out of being charged? That's a can be a tough ask, um, because essentially the most valuable cooperators are those who are heavily involved in the underlying conduct. And if you're heavily involved in the underlying conduct, there's a pretty good argument that you should be charged for it. But there are some cooperators who are, are so valuable uh, and so important that um, you know, they, they deserve and get non prosecution agreements, um, and they, they are able, able to avoid uh, being charged. Uh, the next to me is the prosecutor. Um, prosecutors uh, really run the gamut in terms of their personality, uh, but certainly at the federal level, which is where I do almost all of my work. They're all smart. They all work hard. Um, you're, you're not going to get a lazy, um, uninformed prosecutor. What I'm interested in is what does this prosecutor like to do? Um, if this prosecutor loves to do public corruption cases, and you know, I've got a I've got a guy in a tax case. I think it's less likely that prosecutor moves forward. Um, but that is something where it's particularly important to know the, the the individual characteristics of the prosecutor and and you know what they're interested in. Um, the next one uh, is, is going to be a focus on the defendant, right? Do you have somebody who the government perceives as a, as a recidivist, right? If they don't get this guy, he's just going to keep doing this over and over and over again. That type of person much more likely to be charged as a guy who was in a particular situation, maybe where he had some level of authority um, that, that is no longer the case. is not likely to recur. A lot easier to argue that, that uh, charging the person is not necessary. In order to prevent him from from doing this again. Um, But interesting one to me um, that that I think sort of gets lost a lot is the agent. Uh, When I started working uh, in the Justice Department, I I got connected to an FBI agent who was a total workhorse, um, incredibly hard worker and very smart and had great instincts. And, you know, when when he brought me something, I knew it was good. Uh, and I think the reverse is true. There are agents who are known to be, you know, I don't want to say lazy, but they, they do not work as hard. Um, the quality of the work is not as good. Uh, and sometimes there are ethical issues. There are agents who have, you know, uh, a checkered past and that can be problematic if they have to testify. And, and the prosecutor is going to take that into account um, in deciding whether to move forward, because while the prosecutor is the one that stands up in front of the jury, the, the case Rest to a significant degree on, on the agent. Um, particularly if it goes, uh, if it goes to trial, amount of loss is one that I think a lot of people believe is a, a, really a driving factor. In my experience, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's certainly a factor, everything else being equal, the greater the loss, the more likely the the client gets charged. Um, but a huge loss case is not going to make up for one that's weak on the merits. Um, and I think if you, if you look at the numbers, the Justice Department numbers, um, most fraud cases are, are relatively low level, about $50,000 in loss. So yeah, are there $400 million fraud cases out there? Absolutely. Yeah. Th- those, those are, those are big cases and, and those are going to be charged when the evidence is there. But when it's not, you're, you're not going to be able to, to plaster over the defects in your case just by saying there's a lot of money that was lost. And then the last and, and you know, I think least significant in this context is is the victim. Um, and, you know, to some extent, it matters if the government believes that a victim was taken advantage of. Um, and that's something that particularly if the victim is vulnerable. And that's something that could could recur if that victim does not have the ability to to fight back and recover. Um, whether by way of a civil suit or, or some other remedy, um, it's more likely that the government moves forward to try to protect that person. But the reverse is also true. Um, you know, there are many times where cases are, are essentially civil disputes that find up, you know, wind up in, in, uh, the u s attorney's office and and the prosecutors just realize what's happening, which is you know they're being dragged in to try to generate some leverage uh, by one party or another um, in in what is really just a a piece of commercial litigation.
0: Bill, there's one other factor that I want to uh, ask you about. Uh, I've talked to a lot of lawyers who specialize in FCPA or other uh, corruption investigations. And they uniformly tell me the most important thing is their credibility with the prosecutors, and that when a prosecutor says, "Are the documents secured?" and they say yes, they have to have the documents secured. And when they tell a prosecutor a fact that 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 is a fact, and although obviously facts can change or new information can come forward, that it's your credibility. That is the most important. Does that uh, hold true in in your uh, white collar defense world as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, without question. So to me, the best FCPA lawyer in the country is Joe Warren at Gibson Dunn. Um, And, you know, I dealt with him 20 years ago when he represented a a, a client in a case I prosecuted and, and, you know, I've I've dealt with him since. If Joe tells you something, it's 100% true. And that that credibility not only matters in the context of the particular representation he's making, but the arguments that he's making. Um, and so, you know, in this context, you're, you're not only making factual representations, um, but you're also sort of arguing from those. And if you don't have credibility as a prosecutor, that the prosec- as a, as a defense lawyer, that the prosecutor can trust that when I say the car was red, um, you know, I, I am much more li- less likely as a as a prosecutor to listen to you when you argue from those facts, because I know your underlying premise is wrong. So uh, the best lawyers I know um, and, and the best lawyers at, at this sort of uh, work, this pre indictment advocacy are the ones who are honest to a fault um, and that prosecutors know they can trust. And and the reverse is also true. If you don't have any credibility, you um, you might as well not even bother because no prosecutor is going to listen to you. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. So, turning back to the nine
0: factors, how does this give you a structured approach to thinking through uh, issues such as uh, your defense, a possible indictment, or, or maybe even sentencing?
1: Well, there are some of them that direct, uh, that, that relate directly to sentencing, right? So, loss is is certainly a factor. The history and characteristics of the defendant um, certainly a factor. And so, if you're trying to gauge the potential. Uh, negative outcome if everything goes wrong here. Then, then understanding these factors is important to know what's the the worst case scenario. Um, there are others that are 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 less obvious. I think obviously the the prosecutor and the agent um, are not factors that directly relate to sentencing in the in the sense that the the court is bound to to consider them, but they they matter in trying to predict um, you know what what is going to happen uh, as to how aggressively um that that those two or, or that group is is going to proceed and, and how thorough they're going to be in their their preparation. And I think, you know, what I'm doing here is trying to to combine all of this information and figure out, okay, it's this something that is likely to peter out after six or eight months that I'll never hear from the government again on. Um, and I should just, you know, run silent, run deep. Um, and and hope that nobody notices me anymore. Or is this something that is on its way to a a very bad outcome, a a a heavily uh, uh, laden indictment with lots of counts and lots of loss, such that I have some off ramps now that I need to take. You know, whether that be cooperation, whether that be working out some sort of a, a plea. Um, before I get the 112 count indictment charging $25 million in loss where the defendant's looking at 16 years of, of hard sentencing guidelines exposure and trying to figure out which of those two is the more likely outcome. I mean, that's, that's the challenge. That's, that's the difficulty. And, and so I, I use all of these factors, um, you know, in, in trying to, it's, it's sort of a uh, an algorithm that, that is not an algorithm in the traditional sense, but it, it is in, in my thought process of, of how I go through them and figure out, okay, you add up all these factors, you you run through the calculus, and, and here's the likely outcome. The guy's going to be charged or he's not.
0: Do you see these factors changing, or have they been consistent for uh, a number of years that uh, we can have some comfort that they're going to stay in this
1: basic format? Well, I, I mean, I think that as to the principles of federal prosecution, it, there are tweaks uh, that happen from time to time. Um, you know, some more significant than others. Obviously, I think that will continue to happen as prosecutorial uh, priorities change and evolve um, both over time and from administration to administration. This my list is is sort of an extrapolation um, or a distillation of, of those principles. Um, and I, I don't think I, I wouldn't expect that that the factors on the list would change. It may be that some become more important than others over time. For example, um, you may get a Biden administration that is hell-bent on elevating economic crime um, as a priority um, and decides that is the most important thing um, that, that we need to do. Um, in that situation, the loss may become more important. right? It moves up in terms of significance in, in how you process this. and. Um, you know, I, I can see things like that happening, but I think that the core of my list is is you know likely to stay in place for some time.
0: This has really been a fascinating exploration of a topic that, uh, as I've said several times, those of us who come from the civil side of things really have not been exposed to and really don't use this to think through. But all of this is just an excuse to get to the question I really want to talk to you about, which is <laughs> University of Texas and Uh, Some some secular school, I think north of Texas. I can't remember the name right now Uh, moving to the SEC. So I certainly have views from the great state of Texas, but you're in the great state of Alabama. And what do people uh, over uh, in your neck of the woods think of this?
1: Well, let, let me start. Let me premise my premise my response by saying uh I am an Alabama fan by operation of marriage. I'm am, I'm am certainly happy to to see the team win. I have season tickets. I'm I'm root for them. Uh, but when they don't win, I'm able to pick up and move on with my life relatively quickly. I, I cannot say the same for my wife and and her family. Um you know, I came from the world of the red Sox Yankees rivalry, this, uh, Auburn, Alabama pales in comparison. It makes that fail in comparison. Um, I'm still struck by the notion that, you know, we have to have two games, two TVs going, you know, one to watch Alabama win and one to watch Auburn lose, um, unless they play in Tennessee, in which case we just, you know, hope that maybe, um, lightning strikes the stadium and there's mutually, uh, assured destruction. Um, but I am a fan of good games, um, you know, I, I, I am a selfish fan that I, every week I want to see, you know, the best game that can possibly be, be played. Um, and so I am I am happy to see Texas and, and Oklahoma join the SEC. I'm a little disappointed it won't happen for a few years, but, but when it does, uh, I think we'll all be better for it. I do have some level of concern that, you know, we may start seeing these super conferences and and some of the, the smaller ones may fall by the wayside. Um, but ultimately I, I, I think I reconcile that by saying, you know, more good games are, are good for everybody. And, and I think this gives us more good games.
0: I was in Nashville last week for a podcast conference and uh, near Opryland and I had on a, a UT shirt I hadn't even thought about it, but probably half a dozen people stopped me and said, welcome to the SEC. Uh, And uh, I've been to some SEC games at Texas A&M. And one thing that struck me is, number one, how SEC fans travel. Uh, But two, and obviously very tribal, nevertheless, um, except for perhaps Auburn, Alabama or, or something like that, it's a pretty good rivalry and and people really enjoy uh, going up and playing against other SEC teams, which right now are the best in the, in the country. And so I'm really uh, looking forward to that. It's been interesting for me in Texas to watch uh, the uh, reaction. The legislature wants to stop this and, uh, Oh, you know, Texas is of course just being their arrogant self. And yes, we are. That's the way we are. Uh, we are number one. So, uh, my concern is uh, it's, you're, we're going to the little NFL, and if we're going to play in the SEC West, in my, in my opinion, that's the best division in a conference. And whatever you think of Texas ability or not, when you play LSU, Alabama, Auburn, Texas A&M, even Mississippi or Mississippi State, I mean, every one of those teams can can get up and spank your rear any time. So I don't know how Texas is going to ever plan on uh, utilizing this to, to jump to the uh, national championship game unless they have one
1: heck of a team. Well, you know, I, I always say that as a prosecutor, I wanted to go against the best defense lawyers possible because I felt like Great defense lawyers made me a better lawyer, made me work harder, um, and, and, you know, made me understand better, you know, how to, how to try cases. And I was lucky to try cases against some really, really talented people. Um, and, and I think it it made me a better lawyer. And I think that principle applies that. You know, as a as a football player, you want to you want to be going against the best, um, and that's that's going to make those programs better. And and it, there is a part of me that that is concerned that they'll beat up on each other, you know, uh, for the entire season, and then people will look and say, well, you know, what about uh, what about Boise State here, right? They they're eleven and one, um, and meanwhile they them you know they played ITT Technical Institute or or whoever it is, right? That, that, um, that there is a concern that. <clears throat> They will uh, they will just attack each other for the year and and ultimately, um, that will be to the the detriment. but i I think it's worth it. To me, there is no better trip than to go to New Orleans for a weekend, spend Friday night um, in New Orleans, drive up to Baton Rouge on Saturday, particularly if it's a night game, go to Death Valley for a game. Um, you know, th- those those fans are uh, spirited, uh, shall we say um and uh uh you know very passionate but but also very kind and and you know whenever i've been to three or four games there and i've always enjoyed it and uh it's an experience like i come from the northeast where you know nobody cares about college football they're still talking about doug flutie um you know (laughs) so to see the just the the atmosphere of it the spectacle of it is is really something that's that's amazing and and i've enjoyed it
0: well, Bill, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or any of the topics we've discussed in this podcast, where could they go?
1: Yeah, they can go to to my website. Um, you know, uh, the the law firm's uh, website is um, obviously available to all. It, it links to this article and and everything else I've I've written. Um, and uh, you know, certainly happy every time I, I talk to you, uh, Tom. I I get you know emails or or sometimes phone calls from from people with follow-up questions. Happy to talk to any and all about um, suggestions or questions or, or thoughts they might have.
0: Well, Bill, this has been a great chance for us to catch up, and I look forward to continuing this conversation.
1: Sounds good. Good to see you, Tom.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We got a new great podcast out on the Compliance Podcast Network called Effing Argentina. This is based upon a book by Greg Greenberg, who is my co-host for this new podcast. And we take a look at stories of exasperation in modern America. If you're exasperated, this is the podcast for you. Effing Argentina on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report.